Christmas is just another fairy tale, isn't it? The Christmas story, the Bible, Christianity is being accused today by some in our culture, our increasingly secularised culture, of being just a, a fairy tale. Something that people believe in, but it ultimately is not true. Just this week, uh, as I was supposed to be prepping this sermon, I was instead on Twitter. And you'll see on the next slide. Right, this is a comment on there. Oh, that is, can you see that? Okay. Um, excuse the language. It says, who gives a toss anyway? All religion is superstitious nonsense. Different versions of a very silly fairy stories invented to appeal to the ignorant masses and control their minds. I think that tweet is fairly symbolic of a, a large swathe of people's belief about Christianity. It's just a fairy tale. It's not real. It can be ignored. It might be nice. It might be useful. But it's not ultimately true. That's why as we begin our Christmas series here, we've, we've entitled our series More Than a Fairy Tale? Question mark. Look back on the, the previous slide. Is Christianity, is the Christmas story, is Jesus... Is it more than a fairy tale? Let me get you involved, okay? So you're going to do some of the work now. When you think of fairy tales, what are some of the common features of fairy tales, okay? So if you've never seen a fairy tale before, Luke's already shown you a video with some. Turn to the two, three people around you. What are some common features of fairy tales? Go. Okay, anybody brave enough to shout out some of the things you've been mentioning? No? Anybody? Okay, one at a time. Speak loudly. Go on, Graham. Good versus evil, yeah. I think that's only in one. Um, but bibbity bobbity boo, yeah. I mean, magic. Oh, you know, so, you know, Cinderella, the fairy godmother, magic, changing the, the pumpkin into a, a carriage, yeah. Anything else? Once upon a time. Great. Somebody's been looking at the screen. Great. That's, that's good. But, I mean, once upon a time. Virtually all our fairy tales start that way, don't they? Once upon a time. Anything else? Happy ending. Yeah. And they lived happily ever after. Anything else? The good person never dies. Clearly never seen Bambi. Um, <laughs> Or the Lion King. Anyway, but, but, but yeah, <laughs> often, yeah. I mean, maybe it'd be fairer to say, Steve, that good always wins out. You know, good, good always wins. Um, it, usually in fairy tales, anyway. I think there's, uh, we've got quite a bit there. I, I wonder, uh, would it be, maybe we can ask the question, is, is Christianity just like Little Red Riding Hood? I wonder, maybe because we're in church, we'd say, oh no, they're, they're nothing alike. But I wonder if we were to go out, out the doors into to Rotherham Town Centre, would people say, yeah, it's just like that. Christianity is a, a story that's got some, you know, some teaching, some wisdom in it. In the 18th century, there's a man called Charles Picoult, who basically gave us fairy tales as we now understand them. He was the first man who brought together the fairy tales. He didn't invent them, but he sort of brought them together. He... He used to speak in the, the sort of French court of the 18th century and, and speak to the, the well-off aristocratic people and, and share these fairy stories with them. 
Um, his version of Little Red Riding Hood was brutally short and, to be honest, just plain brutal. When we think about happy endings, Little Red Riding Hood, well, here's how his version finishes. It says, oh, Grandma, what great big teeth you have. And they're all the better to eat you with. And as he said those words, the wicked wolf flung himself on Little Red Riding Hood and ate her up. That's the end. Not quite a happy ending. It's interesting because he then adds a couple of uh, verses to describe the moral of the tale. Her cult believed that, that these, these tales, these fairy tales, had, had morals, things to teach people. As he spoke to the, uh, the French court, he said this, Young children, as this tale will show, and mainly pretty girls with charm, do wrong and often come to harm in letting those they do not know stay talking to them when they meet. And if they don't do as they ought, it's no surprise that some are caught by wolves who take them off to eat. Picot told these fairy stories to, to, to teach people. In particular, Little Red Riding Hood, he said, look, this is a warning to, to the young pretty women of the court that some men are beasts who will try to, to use you, abuse you, even when they talk nicely. Isn't the Bible just the same? Isn't it some sort of morality tale to, so that some people think well, teaches us to, to live a, a better life? Here, come and read the Bible. Let me tell you a story about a man who was so lovely and kind. You, you should be like him. I think often the world outside the church thinks that's what Christianity is. Dare I say it, I think sometimes the church thinks that's what Christianity is. Just last week, Stephen Fry, many of you will know him, an intellectual actor, TV presenter, um, general all-round boffin, was on um, the Graham Norton show, talking about a book he's just written about Greek mythology. Maybe you can remember some of the the Greek myth stories. He's written this book because he finds it interesting, but in the interview with Graham Norton, it, it comes across that he believes that these stories, these myths have arisen only because people can't explain the world around them. And so they create stories. And they're great stories. Greek mythology is, is fascinating some, and brilliant stories in it. But it's only made up to explain what we, we can't explain ourselves, what we don't know. And so for everything that they couldn't explain, the Greeks invented gods. Is Christianity just a myth? Made up to explain the things that people hundreds, thousands of years ago couldn't explain. I think we'll find this view, this, yeah, this, this idea quite a gro- with growing prevalence in our society. Because when people look into Christianity, especially when people know real Christians, they don't say Christianity doesn't do good. What they do say is, it's not true. And so the three questions that we want to put before us as a church and to those that are visiting, if you're you're visiting here today, we're so glad that you're here. Maybe we want to encourage you to engage with these questions about Christianity, but about the Christmas story specifically. Is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? We want you, our, our regular church family, to be asking those questions. Is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? 
And we want the visitors to our church, those people that we know, we want them to be asking the same thing. Is the Christmas story, the story of Jesus Christ, God become man, the baby in a manger, is it, is it true? Is it good? Is it beautiful? And so we're going to look together at Luke's narrative of the Christmas story. How does he tell it? Does he tell it in the way, the style of a myth or of a fairy tale? Let's read those few verses together. They'll be on the screen if you haven't got a Bible that Sarah just read to us. The start of, of Luke's account. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the opening, the start of a biography of the life of the man they called Jesus, written by a man called Luke. You see, the, the, the account's been named after him. Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And Luke is, well, we're told that he's a doctor. So Colossians 4 verse 14 tells us he's a doctor. It might be on the screen behind us. Um, Paul writes, mentions Luke several times. He's a companion of Paul, the early church planter, the early missionary. And Luke's a doctor, but he's also a, I guess, somewhere a cross between a, a, a cultural reporter and a historian. He sees the events that are going on behind him. He sees the impact of this Jesus message, of this man Jesus who claimed to be God. And he writes it down. He says, this is changing the world. Luke was a doctor. And, and that comes through as you read Luke's account. He's got a very forensic, scientific approach. Noting dates and times and, and even medical conditions. And Luke, as he travelled with Paul, would have met many of the earliest followers of Jesus. The twelve disciples. And he writes to this man, Theophilus. Who Theophilus is, we don't know. We know that he's not a Jewish man. He wasn't a person brought up in, in Israel because he's got a Greek name. And maybe we could speculate, he's, he's probably somebody in a church that's grown up outside of Israel in the, the Roman Empire, Greek-speaking person. And I, wonder if it'd be, I think it would be helpful for us to think about looking at the start of Luke's account through Theophilus's eyes. Why does Luke write this story? So here's Theophilus. He lives in the Greek-speaking world, perhaps in Athens or Ephesus. And someone had come into his town with a message about a man called Jesus. And the message was incredible. A normal man from a backwater town in an insignificant part of the Roman Empire had somehow convinced a whole swathe of people that he wasn't just a man, but that he was God. He's a man who taught about love and peace, but also about holiness, about being right with God, about transformation, about not being the person that you were before. 
He taught about the kingdom of God. He talked about a standard of living that was so far high above even even those old Ten Commandments that people have mentioned. The message was incredible, but also credible. It seemed to Theophilus to make sense. The message that there wasn't just it wasn't a multitude of gods, a God for this and a God for that, but one God who made everything, who's in charge of, of everything. And more than that, that God that we could know him, that we weren't just abandoned on this world to ourselves to get on with our own lives. Perhaps Theophilus was aware of the Greek mythology, of the stories of gods coming to live amongst humans, of Zeus, the great god, with his lightning bolts, coming down to the earth and interacting with humanity, sleeping with women. Maybe Theophilus had heard those stories. But that, but that God would not be like that, would not just be ultimately like a man but would be truly good. And that when he came down to earth, it wouldn't be just for his own amusement, but that it would be to to serve and to save people like him. At the start of his account, Theophilus, Luke says, you need to know the certainty of this message that you've been taught. You need to know exactly what Jesus taught and what he did. What he said and how he said it. You need to see that he truly was who he claimed to be, that he was perfect, sinless. That he really was God in his speech and in his miraculous signs. And maybe we can, as we look into the start of Luke, we can say this. Here's why it's so important, Theophilus, to to be certain. Because he heard this message and he clearly believed this message. But he lives in a world that that will make him question it. He lives in a world full of people who would say, Jesus, really? Really you think that the greatest event in all of history has happened in this little backwater place called Nazareth and Bethlehem? Israel really you you believe that God who is God over all things across all time and all history would would take on humanity would get his feet dirty would not want to be served and worshipped and adored in all moments by all people in all time and history Theophilus and we live in a world that will make us question the truth of the message that we've heard The reality is what can be crystal clear one day can be a lot less clear the next. Perhaps the person who brought the message to Theophilus came, stayed for a while. Some people turned, changed, turned to know Jesus. And then he went on to the next town, the next city. So Luke puts together an account. He knows this man, Theophilus. And he knows what he needs Ultimately, what we need is not just the message, but we need certainty. 
We need the message to be reinforced day by day, moment by moment. And so Luke tells us he carefully investigated everything. Everything about this man, Jesus. We think this account that Luke writes is written about 30 years after the the end of the the, the events in, in Luke, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, 30 years later. That seems to be roughly when it's, it's written. It's part of a, a two-parter, Luke and Acts. And Luke says, I'm, I'm going to look into this for you, Theophilus. I'm going to go and speak to the people who know. The people who were there. The people who heard and saw and smelt. And so that's what he does. He goes and investigates Is it true? He goes and speaks, presumably, to to some of the disciples. And we know that actually Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest followers, literally said, hey, guys, here's why you should listen to us, because we were there. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. It'll be there on the, the screen. I'm going to have to read it from the screen. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things... Oh. No, thank you. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. That's Peter saying, hey, we were there. Or listen to John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Luke goes to people like that. And he speaks to them. And he hears from them. And he writes it down. This is Jesus. This from, do you notice, Luke says, from the beginning. Of all the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Luke starts at the earliest point. He starts with the birth narrative. In fact, he starts even before the birth narrative of Jesus. He starts with the birth narrative of his cousin, John the Baptist. Maybe he met Mary. Maybe that's why he is able to, more than any of the other gospel accounts, tell us about what Mary went through. About her experience meeting the angel. And he's able to relay the experience of the shepherds who the angel appeared to and then the great throng of angels in the sky. Luke tells us about that. But is it true? So Luke claims that this account is, I guess, historically trustworthy. He says, I've I've investigated thoroughly. But does then he go off into, well, you know, fanciful tales? Or does he give us something accurate? Let's take a quick tour of Luke's account of the life of Jesus. Let's take note of, of, of what he writes about and how he says it. So here we go. 
I'm going to try and do this quite quickly. But let's look at the times and rulers that he mentions. So Luke chapter 1 verse 5, Luke says this, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Or or chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Or chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Specific rulers, specific times given within their reigns, this is not once upon a time. This is not, here's a story that you can place at any point in history. Because it's not really true, it doesn't matter. He says, no, it's located, rooted, right bang smack in the middle of our time, in, at a time. Here's when these events took place. Here are the people who are in charge. And he mentions specific events. We've already seen Luke 2, that the census that took place. And we could go into to Luke 13. We're there, there's an account where Jesus is talking to some of his followers who come and, and ask him his question. And he mentions two specific events that had gone on about the time when the uh, Pilate had mixed the blood of Galileans with, with the sacrifices of the Jewish people. Okay, we're not going to get into all that means, but there was an event that took place that people had noticed. And then again, a couple of verses later, or 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Again, is in a, is an account Luke saying, "Hey, hey, real events took place. Things that you know, not about Jesus, but other things that went on at that time. This is when that happened. These were ev- the events that the people of that age would have he- experienced and known. Maybe we can think about it in this way. We remember the major events of our times, don't we? So." For certain people in the room, and I'm going to keep looking down at my notes, you'll probably remember the moon landings or the assassination of Kennedy. I guess for some of us, it'll be 9-11. Major events in world history, and maybe even major events of local history that are going on even now. There are customs that Luke mentions through his accounts, things that people who lived then would have known about. So he talks about the the Samaritans and the relationship between the Jewish people and the the Sumerian people. And he says, look, this is is what was going on at the time. Here, let me help you to understand why it's so um, amazing when Jesus tells this parable of the good Samaritan. Luke understands the customs of the time. Or when he talks about tax collectors and the people's hatred of tax collectors. Luke is aware of the social and cultural winds. Imagine if someone was writing a report now of of our times, of 2018 in, in the UK. And they wrote about the personalities. And they noted the major events. But they didn't mention Brexit. And imagine that report was opened up in 50 years' time. 
And the people wrote this report, read this report and said, oh, well, this is what the UK was like. Here are the dominant themes and what, the cultural shifts. And, and any one of us who's still alive in 50 years would go, that doesn't mention Brexit. That's all that's on the news every day. Nobody understands it. Nobody's winning. But everybody's talking about it. Luke has got his finger on the pulse. He knows what's going on. He writes with a knowledge of that culture. And he mentions specific people. We've already seen some of the rulers he's mentioned, but he goes smaller than that. So he writes about the man who buried Jesus, or in whose tomb Jesus was buried, Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph from from that town over there. Or the man who carried the cross for Jesus, Simon from Cyrene, Simon from, from that other place over there. Or the man who was released instead of Jesus, Barabbas. Real people from real places involved in real actions. Cyrene, Arimathea, these are not surnames, they're just little villages, towns. And where everybody would have known Simon or Joseph. These are just some of the clues, indications were given in Luke's account that this is, he's saying, look, this is true. This really happened. Some of these things are now, 2,000 years on, unverifiable for us. Nobody knows, even if there was still an Arimathea. Nobody's going to know Joseph now. But when Luke wrote, 30 years or maybe even less, on from these events, people would have known. People would have known the places. People would have known the events. They would have been able to check. If Luke had said something that wasn't true, people would have just gone, that's rubbish. People would have still been around to say, yes, I saw that. Yes, I was there. Or no, that's rubbish. And Luke's account survived the test. I want to suggest to you, it's because it's true. So what? What does that mean for us? See, like Luke said, the, the Bible story is, is a fairy tale. It is a glorious fairy tale that's also true. See, all the other fairy tales that we read have glimpses, ultimately, of the the greater story. We talk about good versus evil. Well, that's a battle that's written on every page of the Bible. But people don't like it because it places us on the evil side rather than the good And yes, it's got a gloriously happy ending that's so much more than a princess meets a prince. Because as far as I'm aware, none of us are princesses and none of us are princes. And yet it's got a glorious happy ending for broken, weak, like non-event people like us. It's got a great king who is wise and good but not a king who makes mistakes, as you'll find in so many fairy tales. 
Let me read to you a quote from a, a, blog written, uh, a, a blog written by a writer called Jill Caratini. She says this, The modern mind argues that Jesus is just one more attempt at explaining what we merely wish were true. While I know this, uh, where such a statement is usually going and, and disagree, perhaps it is also right. There are elements in myth that we do want to believe. Namely, that the gods do reveal themselves to us that heavenly mysteries can be known on some real level and that life really is saturated with purpose and meaning. She's saying, we might want it to be true because it's so good. And hopefully I think we'll come back to that next week. But she continues on saying this, what humanity has longed for most has happened. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's quoting from John. Reaching into time and touching real history, Jesus came to us. He came to the cross, but it did not master him. I think she grabs something there of this great and wonderful truth that that ultimately when you take what the Bible presents, this is great and glorious myth with the greatest happy ending and the greatest hero. But it's not us. And that gets in the way. It gets in the way because every one of us wants to be the hero. We don't want to be the one who is saved. We want to be the one who does the saving. And yet when we realise that we need to be saved, well then this is the great, glorious, or as C.S. Lewis puts it, the true myth. He says the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. As we finish up, I want to say, if you're here and you're looking in, looking in at Christianity, looking in at Christmas, looking in at Christians, looking in at Jesus, have you examined the evidence? Because so many people would say Christianity is a fairy tale, do so without having read, haven't examined the evidence. Because you can't look and read Luke's account and say, here's a guy who's making it up. At the very least, you've got to say, here's a guy who absolutely believes this is true. I want to encourage you to, to read Luke's account. But I also want to speak to us as Christians, as a church. And I want to just pushing a little bit and say maybe especially if you've been in church all your life maybe you've been afraid to ask is it true because if you're brought along week by week maybe as a child by your parents or you've come along and you know it's good because you've experienced the the fruits of the church to be part of a people who love and care but deep down, you doubt. You doubt whether this account of the life of Jesus really can be true. 
Was there really a virgin birth? Did Jesus really come back to life? I want to encourage you to push it, to be brave enough to say, to ask, is it true? Because the reality is you can sit here week by week and not really believe it's true. But the Bible tells us this. If it's not true, if what Luke tells us about Jesus is not true, not least the resurrection, then, then we are to be pitied more than anybody else. We're the biggest fools in the world. If it's not true. Are we confident? Are we confident enough to say to our friends, hey, why don't you read the Bible? Why don't you read one of the accounts of the life of Jesus with me? Are we confident that it's true? We want to be a church that's not ashamed, not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of the Bible. Because when we dive into Luke, we find this is reasonable. It's rational. We don't expect other people to think that. Sometimes we don't even expect other people who would claim to be Christians to believe that. Maybe you saw the uh, news item about the Coventry Cathedral this week quite happy to play a, a film which was banned in the 70s because of its sexual content. Happy to play that in the cathedral, but, but not happy to have a, a preacher who believes in the Bible speak in their church. We believe it's true. And just like for Theophilus, that knowing, believing, having that certainty that it's true is crucial. It's crucial for us if we're going to grow. It's crucial for us if we're going to have the joy of following Jesus day by day, living for him. If we're going to step out in faith, one of the key foundations for a Christian life, faith-filled, taking risks for God is, do I believe it's true? And let me finish by saying this. As we look at Luke's account, and we ask this question, well, is it true? And we come to the answer, well, it claims to be true. It tells us this, that our God, the God of the Bible, is not just after controlling minds. Remember that tweet that we started the service with? But it's a God who's engaging our, our hearts with the goodness of a God of love, a goodness of a God who steps down into our world to win us, to save us, to love us, to rescue us. But he's also engaging our minds. It's not blind faith. It's not shut your eyes and just follow, keep your gob shut. It's no think, reason, engage. Our God is engaging our hearts, our minds, or even our imaginations. When he steps down into history, not once upon a time, but in this time, he does it 
in a way which is the perfect way for people like us. And so I finish with this to say this story is true and it's good and it's beautiful and it's rooted in history. And if you haven't discovered it yet, why not start today?